0: try to contain the meaning and meanings implicit within Holy Week, I always come back to this one word. I mean, every time I think about it. uh, And the word that keeps coming back to me is ambivalence. Ambivalence. I think that this whole week is filled with emotional ambivalence. Ambivalence simply means having contradictory feelings about something. Feelings that can shift very swiftly. I was thinking about, uh, you know, very famous experiences of internal ambivalence and ones that are more common and universal. I was thinking about Gandhi the other day because Gandhi believed so seriously in nonviolence, but then Gandhi also said that if he had the power of the atomic bomb, he would have nuked Britain. Ambivalent, yeah. And then there's the media. I mean, they're tasked with being invasive, right, in order to present the truth but i mean they're almost all so biased that they wouldn't know the truth and then there's of course romance i mean have you ever experienced a romance in which you really love and really detest the person nobody here i know but you've seen soap operas and they do it's a fine line between love and hate sings the pretenders Well, I was listening to this song the other day. It's actually one of my favorites. It's by the Civil Wars, and it's a duet between a husband and a wife, and they sing about their ambivalent love for the other. It's very haunting. The lyrics are, your your mouth is poison, and your mouth is wine, and your hands can heal, and your hands can bruise, and I don't have a choice, but I'd still choose you. And then comes the chorus that's repeated, I don't love you. But I always will. I wonder if you've ever felt that way, experienced that sort of emotional schizophrenia. It can be very debilitating and very confusing, and you're not sure uh, which feeling is the strongest within you. Well, the pilgrims and the residents of Jerusalem, on the very day of Jesus' grand entry, um, they felt at least during the course of that week of profound ambivalence, they started so happy, and they ended so hostile. And many of the people who were singing that day experienced some sort of emotional transition between the highest of heights to the lowest of depths. And, And I think that's in some ways interesting, but it's not the most interesting thing about this passage. Human ambivalence isn't terribly interesting. After all, we feel it like 80 times a day about 80 things. What's interesting in this passage is not the ambivalent crowd, not the fickle nature of humanity. What's interesting is the exception. What's interesting is the confident Christ who is not ambivalent, the unambivalent Christ who defied the cultural temperature of his own moment. That's what I find so fascinating, that we have one man in history, one man in history with unwavering certainty. One man who really understood his dark task, One man who exemplified his courage in two different ways in our passage from Mark chapter 11. Here are the two different ways. We see his courage in his entrance and in his exit Uh, entrance, first of all. We have an entrance that involves a bold, deliberate, and courageous act. Now, we know the context. It's the capital city. It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Uh, that is receiving unto itself a tsunami of visitors because it's a festival. They're preparing for a festival. It's like a week-long party, but a party with a sort of dark turn because at the center of the party is a lot of dead lambs uh, because this is the time in which people make their sacrifices for their sins. They're celebrating with dead lambs because it helped them remember in visceral terms uh, that instance in which God liberated many many people from harsh slavery 400 years of slavery within egypt and so they're remembering a great liberation a great salvation that god visited upon them you know well over a thousand years ago and so they're all there very religious people very devout people Uh, they're hungering for spiritual depth. They're hungering for connection with God. They're hungering for a sense in which they too can experience some sort of salvation, that they can tap into some revelation, that they can have a deliverance of their own. So that's that's who they are. And what's fascinating about this text and Jesus's entry into this city is how much time our passage spends speaking about a donkey, I mean, it's very strange. Like the, There's all this orchestration that happens in Jedi mind tricks about, you know, you will give me the donkey, <laughs> we will give you the donkey. I mean, it's so, sort of Jedi things going on about the arrangement of a jalopy. And why are we give, giving this inordinate attention, attention to a beast of burden? Why are we talking about a rental car for this long? Well, there's a very deliberate reason. Jesus was doing something to send a signal, he he knew about, and many of the people in the audience that day would know about uh, this royal, kingly, imperial prophecy from the Old Testament, and it comes from a prophet named Zechariah, who had just had it, by the way. He had just had it with the idiot politicians of his day, and he was looking forward to a time in which a truer emperor would come and would replace them, would supplant them. And Zechariah says, "I'm going to give you a symbol. I'm going to give you a tell." that you know a new day has finally dawned. And this is the tell. Whenever you see the king that rides on the donkey into the city, then you know. Then you know that the Messiah is here. And I'll quote the text. This is from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah says, look for the neon sign. Look for the animal, look for the signal, because that's how you know when the definitive and final king is here. Jesus knows this, and Jesus, who was often very subtle and mysterious in his ministry, telling people to hush up and be quiet when he had performed a miracle for them, does so no longer. He instead stands in the role as the monarch and becomes the great emperor of life that was prophesied by Uh, Zachariah, making the clearest possible statement that he is the definitive authority sent from God to the rejoicing city, to the daughter of Zion. He's finally here. And the crowds are not stupid. Remember, these are devout people who have traveled, some of them thousands of miles, to be there for this festival. And they know their Old Testament, and they also know that Jesus is doing something very deliberate. And they recognize it, and that's why they all start to sing an old song that they knew, and they sang it in unison. And we uh, said part of it today Psalm 118, which is always understood to be a messianic psalm that was future oriented, looking into a time when God would save the world through a monarch. And they all start singing it, and they say, Hosanna, which means save us, bring salvation to us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They know it's their moment. They're, that's why they're happy. They've waited forever and a day to have some relief, and so have you, and so you understand why they care and why they're happy, because the signal has been sent, the beacons are lit, it's our day, we have our hero, we have our liberation, we have our deliverance, we have our salvation, and those are all good things to believe, they're right on every single element. They know the labels, they've used the labels, the labels are correct. The problem is that some of those words have an elastic definition. Let's just take one of them. Salvation. Hosanna, come save us. Salvation. It's a tricky term because in the Old Testament, it often had political connotations. And I could read to you like 20 proof texts, but here's three. Um, In Exodus 14 the time when the Jews were leaving Egypt through miraculous intervention. This is what Moses says to the people in the 14th chapter. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord for the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. What was salvation? Freedom from Egyptian captivity. That was enacted salvation, deliverance in the present. And then there's 1 Samuel 11, when Saul was about to attack and kill all the Amorites. It's one of those tender chapters that you read to four-year-olds. Um, 1 Samuel 11. Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Meaning, all the Amorites are going to die. And then, 1 Samuel 19. This is a, a way in which the text refers to David's slaying of Goliath. This is what it says. He struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation that day for all of Israel. What is Salvation. The death of a nine-foot-tall man. That's salvation. I don't want to be too harsh with the crowds, because they grew up under the old canon, and they understood that salvation was a broad term. And salvation meant liberation from political oppression. And salvation meant the death of tyrants. And salvation meant uh, the extermination of, of terrible leadership that was bringing a country into sin. That was their framework. So when they shout, Hosanna, God save us, they understood salvation in concrete terms that God would induce a great deliverance for his people. And so this expectant crowd, with this understanding, sees Jesus as a royal man engaging in royal physicalized iconography. They understand that this is their moment, that he is here to bring us that kind of salvation, that royal political salvation and by the way uh, don't we crave that isn't that why you pray that salvation would have a visitation for you in the present you know that your ex-spouse would stop being so wicked and terrible to you that your second child would actually have a change of heart and start loving his family again that the lupus would go away That this standoff you've been having with your boss because now you've been walking on eggshells for three years and it's absolutely dreadful every single day of your life. That that would somehow go away through some sort of breakthrough conversation. Isn't that what you want to? These people are not crazy. They want salvation, that kind of fully orb salvation. Uh, And now the king of the ages is here. And the Palm Sunday pilgrims have the highest of hopes that life can change forever. So that was Jesus' entrance, a grand entrance that was deeply symbolic, and people lauded him with titles. And we know from the other Gospels, the more extended version of the story, he accepts all the titles. He says they're right to say it. And if they were to shut up about it, even the gravel would scream. The rocks would cry out. Well, that's his entrance. He's setting a tone that he really is Israel's Messiah, and more than that, the world's Messiah. But then he does something that no one expected, he left. He had an exit. He bolted from the city. This is uh, verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, I think that is very funny. Um, So Jesus enters the city of kings as a king, The iron was red hot, nay, white hot. He could have struck said iron, and he said, I'm tired. And he left. That was the end of Palm Sunday. He went to Bethany with the 12. Funny, he's acting like a tourist, right? He's looking at the pretty buildings. Now, Luke 21 gives us an extended version of the story in which the disciples look at the cathedral like they look at the temple and they think it's very pretty and the stones are interesting and jesus says i know that you're fascinated but it's only going to last like 40 more years and be torn down so jesus isn't as impressed and then he's bored and tired and leaves and goes to bethany which is like this very interesting wealthy yet terribly poor community there is a wrong side of the tracks which is a leper colony and a right side of the tracks which is where mary martha and lazarus lived in the lab right? And so he's just going to go hang out with his friends. He has the perfect opportunity in the midst of a festival, in the midst of uh, being in the presence of all the most devout souls within Judaism, all he needed to do was to offer a word, a little phrase, take the city. And they would have, and he didn't. Instead, he just leaves. Jesus has a perfect moment to Claim power and he abandons it. You know, there is a scene that's very similar to this one in the Gospels, particularly in John chapter 6. After Jesus fed the 5,000, there were some within that audience who had a full belly that were so convinced of Jesus's authority, divinity, and power that they wanted to make him king on the spot. You may remember the story. At the end of it, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself, got away from the ambitions of other people. Well, in John 6 and on Palm Sunday, Jesus is deliberately dodging a golden opportunity. Why is he doing this? He's sending a signal. By this exit, he's sending a signal that his understanding of kingship is very different. He uses the same labels, but he defines them differently. But it's not just here. Jesus exits all sorts of grand opportunities during his final week. Consider what he does in the temple, for example. What could he have done? Like if I had written the script for Jesus, and he would have nodded along, right? Because I would be his muse. I would write the script. Why don't you go into the temple and save the really nice teachings? Like talk about like love and tenderness and inclusion. And everybody is welcome at the table. Like, Like save your nice lessons for the temple. And that way, you'll appeal to more people, and you'll get them on your team. And then you can create an even greater revolution, maybe an unbloody revolution, but you could take over. But what does Jesus do? No, instead, WWJD. He, he goes into the temple and, and makes a bullwhip and starts hitting things, and people, and animals, and clears it out from all obstruction and blasphemous behavior. He does that. And then if that's not enough, he starts teaching against the temple and against the authorities of the temple. So all of the religio-political bosses that hang around, all the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the uh, teachers of the law, he starts criticizing them more seriously and strenuously than ever before in his whole life. It's like you have this golden opportunity, and you are, a, you are exiting it. Now, why does he do this? Why does Jesus exit every golden opportunity? Because he's wise, because he's deeply wise, wiser than the crowds, because unlike them, he seemed to remember the more sour notes of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is not altogether glitzy and happy. There are some really discordant passages within that psalm, Uh, principally this one. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Notice, what is the Lord's doing? the rejection of his man, the rejection of his prince. That is heaven's greatest plan. And Jesus knew that that was his goal. That was his not so secret ambition. And he told his apprentices this for a year and a half. He told them at least on four occasions that he was going there to be obliterated. He understands his Christhood in that manner. You know the story, or many of you do, that when he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am, did that mid-ministry, who do people say that I am, who do you say that I am? Peter says, You're the Christ. Jesus says, You're right. And then he says, Peter, let me tell you what Christ means to me. Being Christ means that I have to be obliterated by the most trusted individuals in our culture. It has to happen. Peter doesn't like this, of course, and it gets rather dark in that story, that Jesus does not back off from that refrain. Being Christ does not initially mean golden opportunities for me. It means briars and pain and hardship. It means that some of you will misunderstand me, that all of you will leave me, that one of you will betray me, that some will deny me, that I'll be alone on a hill in front of my weeping mother until I stop breathing. That was his understanding of Christness, and he could never shake it, nor did he intend to. I think it's incredibly needful for us to realize that Jesus knew what kind of salvation we needed. By the way, he didn't object to their understanding that the whole world needed to be transformed, and it really does, by the way. like. If you are ever in an abusive relationship, that needs to be dealt with squarely and forever. If, you're, if you have a debilitating disease this morning, that needs to be uh, cured. If you're running into a relational strain that is just insurmountably difficult to work through, you know what kind of relief you need. That's all part of it, but there's something even deeper. Jesus sees the diseased fruits on the tree, and he's interested in them. But he knows that if you pluck off diseased fruit, there will be another bit of diseased fruit to grow in its place. What you need to do is attend to the roots of the tree, the roots that run straight down into damnation itself and deal with those so that the fruit can be good. Jesus taught this about our own ethics, right? Jesus says that good fruit grows from a good tree and bad fruit grows from a bad tree. And you need, if you're to be helped in the long run, to deal with the roots. And so that's what he's really interested in. He wants to plummet into the roots of our own personal hells, uh, our own disjointed and rebellious state before God that we call sin. And sin is that bent within us. It's not just what we do, it's what we are. The appetite for destruction, the desire for self-sabotage, the need to destroy other people in order to create some sort of fanciful self-legitimacy. And he's very interested in that because it is that thing that separates us from God, that divorces us from other people, that ruins the world. And he will not stop until the root is definitively dealt with once and for all. You see, Palm Sunday, that event gathered a crowd, and that crowd was right in their titles but wrong in their definitions. Yes, Jesus was the king, but the king meant the cross. And yes, Jesus was intending to bring salvation, but it was ultimately the deepest possible salvation from sin getting at the root. Flannery O'Connor once said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd." Jesus had the courage to be odd, to defy expectations, and to refrain from being the king whom we craved so that he could be the king whom we needed. He enters as a king, And he exits our expectations in order to be the kind of king we needed. And Jesus' understanding of his own Christness and his own mission, that over the week that we regard as Holy Week, was enough to create a deadly ambivalence in this audience. And day after day, they started to lose hope. And sometimes when your dreams are deferred, they don't just simmer into silence, but they explode. And that's what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. So let me conclude with a word about this ambivalent crowd as well as the courageous Christ. Regarding the ambivalent crowd, uh, you need to know that in terms of your own core, your own true identity, the truest you that is, you were not made in the image of ambivalence. You were not made in the image of ambivalence, but in the unsmudged reflection of the strength and courage of Jesus Christ. That's really your true self. Your redeemed self, your true self, is the unsmudged reflection of God and of God's consistency, God's courage, if you will, in the incarnate Christ. I think that we need to remember how good resolve is, how good strength can be, uh, how needful consistency is, particularly within our cultural moment, which is so shifting, constantly shifting. It's life sustaining. By the way, you know this if you've ever had somebody in your life who's really consistent in a, health, in a holy way, in a loving way, in a good way, in an ennobling way, it gives life. It gives life to, to us. Have you ever been the beneficiary of that kind of courageous love, that consistent love? So I had this mentor when I was in college, and that was a time of great upheaval for me. But uh, this priest would meet with me, and he was the priest of a, a church of like 1,000 people, but he would meet with me very regularly. And he said at one point, because he knew that I was sort of a mess, he said, look, I I need you to know that I I promise you I'm not going anywhere. You can tell me anything. You can be really sad or really happy. It doesn't change what, what we have. I promise I'm not leaving. And he never did. And I can't tell you what strength that gave me. It's a wonderful thing, and people need that from us, you know. They need us to be good reflectors of heaven, because it helps to heal them. But, but we know, don't we, all too often that we have not lived up to that single-mindedness, to that consistency, to that moral courage. Palm Sunday you know, is a brutal mirror, a very brutal mirror, because it, it, it shows a contrast between the impulses of Christ and our own very faulty, flaky impulses when we have failed to act, failed to speak, failed to stand up for justice, failed to confront evil, uh, had a failure of nerve all around, um, this is the question for us right today is to do a little self-examination. That's what Lent is all about. But like, are you a good mother? Like a non-distracted person with your children? Are you a good father where you're strong, but you're not a tyrant or you're loving and good? Uh, are you honest with your friends? Are you a good employee deliberately in the room when you're in the room? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I asked myself the other day, like, am I a good priest? I honestly don't know. I don't know. I think think there's too much conflicting data to answer the question, right? But I want you to pick up your branch. So this is what they waved on Palm Sunday or something like it. You know, lots of leafy things. And I want you to see this not as a sign of our rightness or our victory. I want you to see this as a sign in some ways of our own ambivalence. Because of those who waved them on Palm Sunday, many of them would have thrown them away in disgust. Many of them uh, would have uh, been happy to burn them all and reject the hosannas and see those hosannas go up in flames. You know, I, I think that um, I think the ambivalence of these branches is actually built into the liturgical calendar. Do you know what we're supposed to do with these after they dry up? We're supposed to burn them, and then we use their ashes for Ash Wednesday to mark everybody with the sign of the cross—a sign that symbolizes sin and death. So much for the hosannas. Why do we do this? It's to show, viscerally show, our own ambivalence that we are not the heroes within our own story. We never were. But here's the gospel word for us. You just heard the law. Here's the gospel. We never had to be. We never had to be. Thank goodness Palm Sunday is not about the crowd and how fickle they were. It's not about ambivalence. It's not about us. It is about the man for others. It is about the courageous Christ. And that's my final word. You know, today is a day of joy. That's why we sang Rejoice the Lord is King, because it's true. There is a true king. And what this week shows us, if nothing else, he won. He kept his word. He was true. He didn't falter, even when everyone was set against him. He was a man of courage who really understood salvation and defined his terms in his own way. For the good of us all, a man who never faltered, who was never compromised, and who adored, for some reason I cannot yet fathom, adored and adores the deeply troubled, ambivalent children of Eden. You and me. He knew that you and I were caught up in too much ambivalence to really help ourselves. He knew that we could not be courageous enough, or bold enough, or good enough, or strong enough, or committed enough, or consistent enough to save anyone, let alone ourselves. And so he did something wild, substitutionary, if you will. He was brave for you. He was brave in your stead. He gave not most of himself, but all of himself for you. He was kingly enough to wear a diadem of spikes that made his scalp bleed. And he was kingly enough to see and experience within his his own nude body iron spikes that nailed him into a wooden throne on a sandy hill. The highest of men became the lowest of rejects. He did it. That's what today is about. He did it. The hero did it, unfalteringly, to his final breath. And because of him, the ambivalent multitudes of the earth can finally feel the first days of springtime, a springtime of cowardice forgiven, and now the timid can be brave, the weak can become strong, and the whole world rise again from death. Friends, it's all true. This week is meant to convince you of that. It's all true. So let me just conclude with the crowd and say, as they did Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Free at last. They took your life. They could not.